Good morning. My name's Linda Bailey. It's great to be with you this morning. Now, I've got a question to ask you. Have you ever eaten a mud pie before? And I'm not talking about a mud cake, because let's be honest, they're delicious. But have you eaten a mud pie before? You know, something that has been constructed probably by a preschooler out of dirt and water and presented to you like it's some glorious feast that you would really want to enjoy. And by have you eaten a mud pie before, I mean have you like wafted it in front of your face going, oh, this is delicious, but never let it touch your mouth, right? The great thing uh, about a mud pie is that a preschooler, someone young, can construct it for anyone willing to take it on. But the the funny thing I find about a mud pie is they present it to an adult, someone who has the capacity with a good Google recipe and access to every aisle in a supermarket can actually create something actually worth eating rather than a mud pie. And often they're presenting this to someone who even if you're thinking, well, Linda, you're really overextending my ability in the kitchen, probably has the resources, the finances to go and purchase something that would be nicer to eat than a mud pie. And yet, as a good adult will do, we will take it on board and put a big smile on our face and act like it is the best thing we could ever want to consume. Mud pies. The passage that we are reading today from 2 Samuel reminds me a little bit of this illustration. Someone giving over a meat pie, thinking it's a mud pie, thinking it's the most amazing thing in the whole world. And yet the recipient being a little bit more honest than maybe what a parent might be if they were to receive a mud pie. But let me get us in the context of what we are talking about. We are currently in a series on David. King David, we've been reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, looking at the life of David, right back from the start when he was anointed as the future king, when Saul was still in power, how he defeated Goliath. He then went on into Saul's army, and he was a great leader, a great warrior. He fought and won many battles. He was put up as a great person in Israel, so much so that Saul, the current king, got jealous and despised him, tried to kill him multiple times. And here we come now to a point where David is finally king. Over potentially over a decade and a half, he had been anointed. He's now finally king of Israel. And he's starting to put his, his fingerprint really on Israel and on his reign. He is a man after God's own heart. And as we've heard over the last couple of weeks, he is bringing forth a nation. He's uniting a nation. He is bringing them before God as he would have them do to have God as their focus. He is encouraging them to worship in the way that he knows God would love his people to worship him. 
And last week we heard as Darren told us about how he's brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, bringing the symbol of God's presence into the main city where he is and where the people gather to put the prominence and the focus upon God. And as he is a man after God's own heart, he now wants to give God the honor and the glory. And so we read from 2 Samuel from chapter 7. I'm just going to read the first half. After the king, David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So here we have David, finally the king of Israel. He's brought the nation together. He's defeated his enemies, particularly the Philistines. And here he is now establishing his kingdom on earth. Now, what would often happen of kings at the time is they would build mighty structures to show clearly how powerful and majestic they were. Even in the Old Testament, we hear of Nebuchadnezzar who built a gold statue of himself for everyone to come and worship. 
This was the way. This was the culture. This is what kings did. They wanted to put themselves forward, put a stamp of their power, their majesty on the nation and to declare how great they were. And so here we hear David, a man after God's own heart with really good intentions, right? He isn't saying, I'm going to build a massive statue of myself. He's not saying, I'm going to build, you know, bigger buildings and greater things so that people can see how great I am. He's taking what people did in the culture and he's wanting to give God glory through that and build him a house. Now, this word house is actually mentioned 15 times just in this chapter alone. And even though it is the same word that is used in the Hebrew, it's actually translated in three different ways, in a number of different ways. And even in our English translation, we have it in a different way. So here are the three things that house is translated as. To begin with, David is in his house. He is in his palace. Now, it would have been quite a glorious building. Let's be honest, David and his family aren't living in a two-bedroom unit in the outer suburbs, right? He's living in a glorious place. It even talks about the cedar wood that it was built with. Now, it's very probable that it was built with bricks, but it had this cedar wood, this expensive resource that was hard to come by. And it was, would have been on the insides to show how glorious this palace, this place, this house for the king would really be. The second uh, interpretation of this word house is a house for God, which was a temple. A house for God. Now, currently, the, the symbol, the, the thing that represented the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant was in a tent. It wasn't in something, you know, form, a, a strong structure. It was in a tent and had been, as we hear in this passage, for generations and generations because the Israelites would move from place to place. And so God would move from place to place with them. As the Israelites lived in tents, so too did God, did the Ark of the Covenant reside in a tent. Now, it's not lost on me that we are preaching about this this weekend, while 160 of our congregation are down at State Youth Games, majority of them have actually slept in a tent last night. Now, these tents, hi to anyone who's watching at SYG, I've been down there, they are, well, we would call them marquees right? A professional company comes, there's nice strong poles, they put all the perfect professional marquee, you know, covers over it. It is a, a very strong, very secure. If you've got children down there, they are being well looked after. But let's be honest, you and I who woke up this morning didn't get up and think, oh, really would have loved to sleep, sleep in a tent last night. <laughs> That would have been so much better than our nice, warm, cosy home, right? A tent is still a tent. And here David is recognising that the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of God himself, is still in a tent 
while they are being established and building homes for themselves. But there's a third interpretation of this house. And this is what God says to David. You want to build me a house, but I am going to build you a house. And what he is actually meaning is a dynasty, a legacy. He says your house is going to be on the throne for generations and generations. In fact, your house will last forever. And so, as nicely as he can, God is saying, I appreciate your offer, David. As you are in your house, your palace, you would like to build me a house, a temple, and yet I'm going to say no. Now, there are a number of reasons why God said no to David. And Robert Alter, who is a Hebrew and Old Testament scholar, says it like this. The probable historical reason was that David was too preoccupied with the struggles within his own court and family. And boy, did he have a lot of struggles. There was a lot going on for David, and there continued to be a lot going on for David. But he goes on. He says, in Chronicles, the re reason given is that he had shed blood. In Chronicles chapter 22, it says that David said because he had shed blood, he was not able to build the temple. In the Old Testament, in the rules, it said a temple builder was not able to shed blood. And here David had been a mighty warrior. But Alter goes on. Here in 2 Samuel 7, the argument God makes is that it is an act of presumption for a mere mortal to build a temple for the unhoused God of Israelite history. Here is a God who had been with his people, the Israelites, as they had moved from place to place to place. God didn't, wasn't faithful to them because they had built him an incredible temple. God was faithful to them because they were obedient to him. God didn't look for the outward appearance. He didn't look for what they could give him with their resources. He didn't look at how they adored him, how everyone else in the culture and other nations adored their God. No, God was faithful to them because they were obedient to him. And for David to now say, to really worship God, we need to build him a temple, God says no. And let's be honest, to put it into perspective, I mean, the Psalms remind us of how great God truly is. Psalm 146 says, he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful Forever, God sees the offer of a temple being built from David and he goes, oh, thanks so much, but I'm the maker of heaven and earth. Like, this is what I've made. This is my creation. Like, I appreciate your temple, but like, I made the power of the oceans. Like, is your temple going to be as 
powerful because like this is where I am worshipped. This is where I reside. This is where people can find my presence. How does your temple look now when we look at the ocean? What about the highest peak of a mountain? What a, this is the incredible view that God has. This is where God's presence can be found. This is what God has made. Thanks for the offer of your temple, David. Is it going to have views as grand as the highest peak in the whole world? What about the ecosystem of a forest? What about how everything that I have made within a forest works together? It's all created to grow in such a way to support everything else that is living and growing within a forest. How does your temple compare to the ecosystem and the incredible creation of a forest. What about, how does your temple compare, David, even to a hummingbird? Let's break it down to just one part of my creation. A bird that weighs less than a 10 cent piece, and yet at a dive, its wings can flap over 200 times a second? Like this is the detail that the maker of heaven and earth has gone into for all of creation. And yet here is David saying, let me build you a temple, right? I mean, it's a bit like a, a toddler making a mud pie and presenting it to Gordon Ramsay as the most successful, celebrated, prestigious chef in our time and going, do you like it? Do you want it? Now, we're in church, so I can't actually repeat what Gordon Ramsay would probably say to a preschooler. But we do hear what God says in response to David. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so often, I think we, with our good intentions, with our understanding of the world, the world that we live in, we see how things are celebrated and we think we should offer that to God as well. And don't get me wrong, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a generous giver. He is a generous God and he encourages us to be generous as well. But so often when we offer things to God, we need to put it in perspective of this incredible maker of heaven and earth. All he can do and all that he has made and all that he is. Let's keep in perspective what our offer to him can truly be. In the NIV commentary, it says, Yahweh's objection to David's plan has historical reasons. He has not needed a physical home since the time of Exodus until the day of David. Furthermore, Yahweh has not requested such a house. 
Temples were for deities who were tied down. Israel's God cannot be manipulated or contained in a temple, a point made carefully when the temple was eventually built. This is our God who cannot be tied down. He cannot be manipulated. We can't keep him in a box that makes us feel comfortable and us feel secure. He is greater than anything else than we can offer or imagine. And that's why the last three weeks of sermons that we have looked at, through Tim and Darren's preaching, on how to truly worship God, of how we can come and be made right before God, how we should worship God, not just with our words and our songs, but with our bodies and in our absolute beings, with everything that we are, even to the point that we may be considered foolish by those around us. It is so important for us as a whole church to recognize that importance. That God doesn't desire a physical building. God doesn't desire the things that we think are important. He doesn't desire popularity or prestige. He doesn't want power that this world celebrates. But he wants a house within our own hearts. And from within him dwelling in our hearts that we would live in such a way that we would give him honour and glory with our lives, with our worship and with everything that we are. God didn't desire a temple. He desired obedience. He desired a people that was after his own heart. And the incredible thing about our God is he often sees what we have to offer. And he says, I see that, but I'm the maker of heaven and earth. And I have something even greater to offer you. David in his house, in his palace, offering a house to God as a temple. God says, I see that temple, but David, I am going to give you something even greater. I am going to give you a dynasty. I am going to give you something so great, it is going to last forever. And in the second half of this chapter, we hear David's response. He is humbled by this offer. He knows he is not worthy for his family to sit on the throne forever. And yet that's so often what God does, doesn't it? He sees what we have to offer, and yet he gives us something even greater than we could ever imagine. He says to David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. 
When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Now, this is a covenant that God is making with David. We hear about a number of covenants that God makes with a number of different people throughout the Old Testament. But here he makes a covenant to David about his offspring. And this is a, a plural. Really, he's saying not only will his son Solomon, who is actually the one that ends up building a temple for God, not only will he sit on your throne, but your flesh and blood, your offspring from generation to generation, when there was a king on Israel's throne, it was from, he was from the line of David. This is something that any king would, would have a great heart for, would desire, would want for their generations. And this is what God is offering to David. But let's be honest, God always goes above and beyond. And he's not just talking about David's line. He's not just talking about a kingdom that will last for David and the Israelites. The word offspring is plural. It is multiple. But then he moves in this passage to, I will establish his kingdom as singular. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong or carries the wrong of all the world on his shoulders, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. This is a prophecy of the one to come the Messiah, the Saviour, the Redeemer, who will not just be on the throne over Israel, will not just be on the throne for David and his people, but his kingdom is for everyone and forever. And as we go throughout the Old Testament, we continue to see these prophecies about the Redeemer, about the Saviour. One in Isaiah chapter 9 that we hear all the time in the lead up to Christmas. It should be very familiar to a lot of people. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on whose throne? David's throne. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And over and over again in the Old Testament, we have more prophecies about someone from David's line coming to redeem all people for all time. And then as we enter into the New Testament and we read through the Gospels, through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they are constantly showing evidence that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one from the line of David. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the Savior. It's Jesus who will be building God's kingdom on earth forever. 
And one of those times we read is in Matthew 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I will be his father. He will be my son. Jesus was the answer to the prophecy that God gave to David of a dynasty that would outlast even David's family. A dynasty that was for all people forever. It's for you and it's for me. It's for our neighbours, it's for our colleagues, it's for our friends, it's for our family. A faithfulness of God that he proved to us through Jesus Christ. Giving us something greater that we could ever imagine. God was the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in it. And he's Faithfulness remains forever. This promise that he gave to David is a reminder for us that God is still faithful to us today. That he keeps his promises. He doesn't need a glorious building. He doesn't need our words of praise. He doesn't need our giving of ourselves. He doesn't need anything that we have in this world to offer. As he was faithful to the Israelites, he was faithful to David. He is the same God and he is faithful today. So if you are standing there and thinking, well, all I have to offer God is like a mud pie. I don't have wealth. I don't have, you know, prestige. I don't have power. You know, I struggle day to day just as it is. What I have to give to God is not amazing. God doesn't care. He doesn't require anything greater than just who you are and who he has created you to be. Because we are reminded that he is the maker of heaven and earth. He has everything already. And yet he was still willing to love us so much and be so faithful to us that he has given us his own son, that his kingdom can still reign today through our obedience and through our worship to him. And as I finish up, I would love to pray with you the whole of Psalm 146. It's only 10 verses. And can I encourage you to stand as I say it? It reminds us of the simplicity of what we have in this world, but how great and mighty and powerful the God we can choose to worship truly is. So if you are comfortable, I'm going to pray this psalm. So if you're comfortable, I encourage you just to close your eyes and listen 
to the words of Psalm 146 as a prayer to finish today. Praise the Lord. Praise you, Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Praise you, God, that you are faithful and that your kingdom reigns forever. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen.